Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Adventures in Machine Learning. I am one of your co-hosts, Michael Burke. Ben is actually out today. Um, he had some exciting news and is taking a few weeks off. And so it will be just me. And today I am joined by Ken Ewens-Clark. He has spent a lot of his career in academia, but has recently switched over to bioinformatics. And I was wondering, Ken, if you could sort of introduce yourself and explain why you're famous. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Well, I'm not sure if I'm famous, but my quick story is uh, I, I graduated with an English degree a billion years ago and needed to figure out a way to make a living. Got into computers and programming, thought that was really cool. That led me into a bioinformatics lab in 2001. So I discovered this whole world of academia and research and this, this, this nexus of biology and computer science and thought that was super fascinating. And that's basically where I've spent most of my career. Most of it in research. But the, at the beginning of this year, I joined DNA Nexus, which is a commercial platform, uh, cloud-based platform for enabling bioinformatics. And so along the way, especially during my time in academia, I got really interested in teaching. Uh, I really love mentoring and, and working with junior developers. And uh, I, was, uh, I, I was really excited to, to get some classroom experience while I was uh, at the University of Arizona, where I worked for several years and also earned my master's degree. And uh, it was in teaching those classes that I started writing books. My first book, actually, I was on this podcast a couple years ago to talk about Tiny Python Projects, which was my first book. I use that in the classroom several times to just teach the basics of, of, of like how to write a well-structured command line program in Python and also how to test it. Uh, testing is, is really has become a, a crucial theme to all three of my books. My second one is called Mastering Python for Bioinformatics. I published that with O'Reilly in 2021. Continuing the theme of like, here's how you use tests to write a good program and make sure it's reproducible, which is a crucial in, in science and research computing and, and bioinformatics. And, and I've really taken that forward. Uh, I, I use all the skills that I talk about in those books daily in my, in my job uh, working for some rather large customers that we have, uh, DNA Nexus. Um, just before I joined uh, at the beginning of the year, I was able to finish up my third book called Command Line Rust. So all my books uh, talk about how to write programs at the command line, the Unix command line, and how to test them. And so I just took the same formula that I had used for two books in Python. I used it on Rust. And honestly, I used it to teach myself Rust. Uh, I used that experience. I was enamored of Rust, had played around with it for a couple of years. And I was like, you know what? I want to get serious. I want to really figure this language out and, and understand all the different ideas, for instance, about borrowing and pointers and things like that, that I'd never encountered in uh, dynamically typed languages like Perl and Python that I'd used most of my career. So that was kind of my deep dive into Rust and, uh, and also continuing forward with using test-driven development to, to write command line programs, which I think is a great way to learn any language, just to write simple programs that you already understand the basics of. Like, for instance, in this latest book, you write an implementation of cat uh, or head, which probably everyone has used a dozen times a day. So that's that's how I've gotten to where I am. Not currently working on any new books, mostly just trying to uh, keep my head above water with this this new job. It's quite a, it's quite a, a challenge. And what are you doing in this new job? 
I'm uh, my 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 title is senior solutions engineer. It's a pre-sales role, but it's extremely technical. So my job is to, uh, for instance, take a customer's uh, existing pipelines, uh, analysis pipelines, and implement them in, in our platform. And a lot of times that's pretty simple because they're already probably using Unix command line tools. And so a lot of times we're just putting them into maybe a Docker container and then writing some Python or, or uh, Bash to, to launch that and, uh, and wrapping that up in our platform. But sometimes it's, it's writing workflows from scratch. Like the customer has a basic idea. They want to take some sequencing data. They want to go through these QC steps. They want to do these, 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 these cleanup steps. They want to do these analysis steps. And then at the end, they want this custom output, which means I have to sit down and write a bunch of little, a lot of link, linking scripts a lot of times to you know transfer, tra- translate one format to another or, or run some tools. So we use a lot of, of what's called a, a language called WDL, Workflow Definition Language. So it's a, it's a high-level language for describing the first step in a, in a pipeline is this tool. It takes these inputs. It creates these outputs. The outputs from that tool can then be linked to the next step. And on down, it creates a chain. And along the way, you can implement basically kind of MapReduce ideas. So if you have like 100 files coming in, you can say scatter these over a bunch of nodes uh, and take the outputs of those and reduce them in this step where you bring them all back together for some sort of analysis. So it's just a lot of data analysis and a lot of writing code and, and, and honestly writing a lot of tests. One of the longest engagements I've had so far was actually just writing, writing bespoke Python code for a customer who didn't have in-house bioinformatics uh, expertise. And so they, they came to us with a rough idea of, of some tool that they wanted written and and I just sat down and wrote it from scratch and and put in you know like a hundred tests there to make sure that it, it works correctly so but yeah that's pretty much what I'm doing I'm, I'm, a, I'm a developer awesome you touched on a really inter- well several really interesting points and please stop me if you've covered these in the last podcast I wasn't a host a couple of years ago I joined like six months ago um, yeah. but what is your overall thought about like, how do you approach testing an application? Because there's this dynamic where you can test unlimited things and use all of your time to make sure that the sum function of a given of a given language is working properly. But you can also just assume that, for example, sum and like numpy.sum actually sums two numbers. So where do you draw the line between over testing and yet being confident in your code? Yeah. I, uh, I, it, there's definitely a lot of spot testing. Uh, anything that I write from scratch, I try to be fairly exhaustive. My functions, I, there's an interesting book from Manning called Five Lines of Code, which I think the general idea is that a, a function should be about five lines of code, um, which is maybe a little terse uh, for me. I, I want a function to fit in a page, like probably 50 lines or less, but I'm fine with a one-line fun- uh, one function. The simpler and smaller a function is, the easier it is to test and you know exhaustively test. So if I'm writing something, I might take a large function, try to break it down into as many very small functions that have what I feel are exhaustive tests for those very, very limited ideas, and then piece them back together into something larger that's more 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 complex. And, you know, those tests, each piece should be orthogonal, right? So, you know, f- fixing any one function has no effect on any of the other functions. It's interesting you brought up the uh, NumPy sum, because I actually have run into some problems with that. You know, it, underneath it's implemented in C, and so it's, it's susceptible to buffer overflow. So, it, you know, if you get into extremely large uh, integer values and you're using NumPy, actually in my second book, the the, the mastering Python, I, I specifically point out that if you're trying to create in, in this in this instance, I think it was the exercise where you're trying to find all of the possible DNA sequences that could lead to a particular protein sequence. And given as the protein sequence gets longer, the the number of input DNA sequences gets exponentially larger, such that it's very very easy to overflow an integer value uh, in NumPy. And so, what's interesting is in, actually in Python, you're only it's it, the, Python's native integers are unbounded, except to your what, however much memory you have. So anyway, we talked specifically about that. But you know, sum is a great function to talk about because obviously you can't exhaustively test that. You can't add all the numbers in the universe. So uh, you do have to just. And this was interesting with the Rust book. One of my reviewers was just 
he was just so amazing. And he, he really was able to say, well, we can use built into the language, you know, for instance, the upper and lower bounds of this data type. So, you know, for instance, a U32 or a U64, you can actually say, well, for this function, going up to the bound, the upper and lower bounds for this data type, does it work at the extremes? Does it work with stuff in the middle? Uh, it's 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 quite a bit different with Python because obviously you know uh, we don't have that fine a grain of types. So that would I remember a CS professor telling me, for instance, if you're writing a function, try to handle like zero, one, and then some number of stuff, and just like that idea has 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 served me really well. So when I'm trying to write a function, I say, well, what happens if I pass the empty string? Or what happens if I pass zero? What happens if I pass a, a rather large number and then maybe something in the middle? And then and then probably that's good enough. But the the crucial thing that I find, especially when I'm dealing with input data from, from a customer, you know, so often, you know, the input data is going to be like a CSV file. And you th- you th- you have an idea of the, the kinds of data that you're going to get for a particular column. You write a function to handle that column. And then it's working well enough. And then in production, it breaks because they supplied a value that they didn't tell you they were going to supply. It was something you were unexpected. So what I will often do is take that value put it into a test, prove that my function fails with that input, go fix the function, run the test again, prove that it now works with the with the new value that I wasn't expecting when I was developing this. And now going forward, I have a regression test. So I, I know I shouldn't fail when I see this this value again. And so a lot of times my tests become this place where I accrue things that I wasn't expecting. And I use them just moving forward to to kind of refine the code. That's really interesting. So it makes the project development life cycle a living, breathing thing that slowly grows over time. Have you also seen your knowledge base around testing increase throughout your career so that you write better tests? Or did you have it down by like day two? Oh, no. So the, just to, to go back to the beginning, I'm totally a self-taught programmer from from the earliest days. A guy, I got a job as a technical writer. So I had a, I had, you know, an English degree, I can write a term paper, right? I was interested in computers and I was playing around with like uh, Microsoft access databases and some, some really simple kind of macro programming. And a guy let me write a piece uh, of software. He had written some software. I wrote a manual for it. Then he, he saw some, some potential there and he taught me visual basic, which was the program, the language that that program was written in. And, and so I, for, 20 years really didn't do any testing at all. Like no one sat me down and said, here's the proper way to write a piece of software. I mean, I was just wild west, whatever worked, whatever the, you know, and I was writing code for customers. And it's just like, if it worked and they didn't complain, we moved on to the next job. I was mostly working on extremely small teams or basically with myself, you know, just me with a customer writing some code. If it worked, we moved on. It was really when I started teaching that I started really getting involved in testing. And, and I credit one of the worst students I ever had uh, with making me a much better student, a much better teacher. It, I, at the time when we, when we first started off, we were um, my boss, uh, Bonnie Hurwitz, who hired me at the University of Arizona. We had been colleagues together at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory Research Institute, uh, where we were working on like plant genomics databases. And we're good, good friends and stuff. And so she let me loose in the classroom. I was really excited about this. And at the time, we were both Perl hackers, showing our age here. I really got into Perl in the late 90s because of uh, you know web development. And then it took over in bioinformatics because it's so good at, at text processing. So we thought this is like 20 15, 2016, we thought, well, we'll just teach our students Perl. And uh, I had no real uh, method for teaching. I was just like, hey, I've got a dozen students here. Turn in a program. I'm just going to run them manually on the command line and see if they work. And I'll just give you a thumbs up. I was just basically looking kind of for pass fail here for these students. I was teaching them uh, from the beginning. I'm just like, give me something that kind of is in the ballpark. Well, this one student turned in code that didn't even compile. It wasn't even syntactically correct. And he was like, well, I get partial credit, right? Because, I mean, I turned something in. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. I mean, like, it doesn't even compile. Like, that, that, and so I had to have an objective way to say, this does meet some minimum requirements. And so I just like, oh, I have written tests before. I had written some CPAN modules and was trying to learn about 
proper software development. So I had gotten into uh, into testing a little bit. And so I started giving my students the te- a test suite, a basic test suite. And I said, you know, here's how you run the test suite. And now you will know before you even turn it in if it works. Like whatever percentage of tests pass, that's your grade. If you passed 80% of the tests, great. You got an 80. That, that's, it's just it's just black and white here. And so I started using that. And then I started realizing, oh, if I actually show them the test one by one and say, like, here is what this test is expecting. Here's it actually. And I would order the test in a particular way. Like, first, your program has to exist and it has to be called this thing. Next, it has to actually print a usage statement. Next, it has to take an input value and do this thing with it. And so I was trying to use the tests in a particular way and that they were ordered so that the students would have kind of a roadmap to how do I start the program and add features and get it to be where it does all the things it's supposed to do. So I got much, much better at writing tests for that purpose. And then I, you know, and then I started like teaching like, oh, no, I'm actually going to teach them how to write tests and show them that this is a good way to learn how to break a large problem into many smaller problems. And then, you know, it's kind of, so I'm I'm a parent, I have three children, and I came across this quote years ago as, as a young parent. It said that setting an example for little children takes all the fun out of middle age. And, and it's true. Like if, if you're going to ask your, your kids to eat vegetables, you've got to model that behavior. You've got to eat vegetables. You've got to stop having a bowl of, of Captain Crunch right before bed, which I used to do, right? And just like, you have to model this good behavior. And so I started like, everything I did, I was like, oh, I'm going to have to write a test for this. And and you just, I don't know, it just became just a, a part of almost my identity. Like if I'm going to write a program, I'm going to write a bunch of tests. And and I feel like that's that's what has made me become a much, much better developer and test writer and author and, and teacher. So yeah, I guess that's where I how I got to, to here. Yeah. And I, I could not agree more that tests make you better in all areas of life. They help you modularize your thinking. One of the most impressive programmers that I've ever worked with, he doesn't write complex code, he doesn't write fancy code, but everything is so legible and so clean and makes so much sense and therefore is super, super testable. Um, So not only can you make sure that it will run reliably, but you also can understand it super quickly, and you can also add to it and edit it and change accordingly. So testing it has been invaluable so far in my career. But I wanted to hone in. I would just. Sorry, go ahead. I want to. I want to just make one analogy, if I can, to to literature. So, yeah, two please. of my favorite authors, and, I, and and please, I have a lot, a wide range of authors, but I love David Foster Wallace and Ernest Hemingway, and and those could be like red flags for some people because they, they were kind of problematic in many ways. Obviously, Hemingway is super misogynistic, but from a writing style, they're, they're, they're so diverged. Like where David Foster Wallace will have like paragraph long sentences with footnotes and the footnotes have footnotes. And it's, and it's just insane how convoluted and you can, but you, you really don't get lost in his sentences because they're so well constructed, but they're just so complex and you're just in awe of how he can put all that there. And then you go to Hemingway where it's like short declarative sentences, almost not even compound sentences, like, you know, just so to the point and very clear. And I would say that my goal when writing code is exactly the way that you described your colleague. It's like short, extremely obvious functions. And one of the things I would say about tests is I like when I can, I'll put the very short function here and then right below it, the test. And hopefully both of them together fit on the screen and the test serves as documentation. So you can say, oh, this function I can see takes this as input, this string. And when it's given this string, this is the data structure that it will return. That in addition to using uh, type annotations, which which I do in Python, and then obviously you, you, you have to in Rust, I think type annotations, documentation, tests, they all lead to extremely they can help lead to to clear, simple code that is easy to understand and easy to refactor. Yeah, that's a phenomenal analogy. Hemingway versus, yeah, that as like sort of a declarative analogy. He's, I think he would be the declarative programmer in English, I feel like. <laughs> um, but I was really curious. One thing that you brought up about grading was really interesting, which was you were trying to grade programmers based on an objective yes-no, and your default was web, was essentially a, a pass-fail. And when someone mm-hmm. didn't have something that compiled, well, that it fails. How did you go from such a creative field 
as English, at least on the more fiction artistic side, where there aren't super hard and fast rules. How did you go from that creative world over to the very declarative Boolean world of program? How was that transition? I found it easy. Not easy. I mean, programming is not easy. It's not easy to learn, but it fits the way that I think. I think I really missed an opportunity to study uh, mathematics too in in college. Uh, I think that you know, I actually, I, I got through calculus in high school and, uh, and, and took the AP exam and was able to just not take math in undergrad because I was a, I was a Bachelor of Arts. And so, you know, at, at most I would have had to, I think, pass Algebra too, right, which I, I finished in like 10th grade. So there's something about the way that I think that coding, it comes more easily to someone who knows how to use language, maybe than necessarily mathematics, but having a strong language background. And then if I I have over the years been trying to learn more mathematics, more the rigorous computer science underneath of what's going on, but I still feel like I'm, I'm, I approach coding from like, how expressive can I be? How obvious can I make this? Like obviously choosing good variable names, choosing good function names, I actually really, really rely on functional programming style so that it's a lot of times it'll be like map this list through this function. And if you understand map, then you just kind of understand you're applying the function to each element and then you're, you know, you're transforming like that or filter, filter through wanted, the function wanted this list of values. And so when I feel like when I read my code, it's like, oh, this reads like a little English sentence, this, this. And so, and that, that was actually, I think, something that maybe attracted me to Perl for so long. You know, Larry Wall, uh, the creator, is a, is a linguist by training, and he had a lot of ideas about bringing linguistic ideas to, to the expressiveness of Perl, which I think also leads to a lot of gotchas. Over the years, I started understanding how, how easy it was to misunderstand Perl, just as it is easy to misunderstand English, especially in the written form. Uh, so I, I see a lot of corollaries between language usage and writing code, even very formal code. And, and maybe I should also clarify that a lot of the programs I write are very short, uh, you know, in the, on the order of hundreds of lines of code in a particular, you know, uh, script. So I, I wouldn't classify myself up there in the upper echelons of, of, you know, super complex coders who probably have a far better understanding of like memory management and like caching and and you know all the stuff about computer engineering i really have no clue how those things happen i've I've strictly avoided languages like c c++ java my whole career i've 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 relied more on dynamically typed languages like perl python javascript bash and so maybe there's something there where i'm happier I'm I'm okay with the kind of the ambiguities that are present in in those those languages. Maybe they're closer to uh, to natural languages in that way. I don't know. Maybe at this point I'm just rambling, but I do think that a background, a humanities and a classics background, is is a strength in a STEM field because writing code is one thing, but writing code that other people can understand, writing code that is documented, uh, getting your ideas across, uh, those maybe are soft skills, but they're extremely important. Uh, to succeeding in this career as much as important or more than just being able to, to write good code. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah, could not agree more about bringing different fields into the technical realm. Oftentimes, you need to work with humans and you need to build stuff for humans. And having not just a math background or not just a computer science background allows you to come at things from a different angle and problems from a different angle. And having, I've at least 
found that having a diverse team really leads to cool solutions and cool discussions. I haven't ever worked with someone that came from an English background, though. So that one day. I would point out, actually, you know, I, I graduated with an English background. I started as a music major. So, oh, wow. And, uh, and it was a, I was a drummer. I started as a jazz studies major at the University of North, Te- North Texas. Bounced around. I changed my major several times. I really had no idea what I was doing in life. No direction. Never took a CS class in undergrad. Just took a bunch of humanities stuff, philosophy, religion, and, and never thought that I would become a coder. So, uh, and actually, it's funny. I've had a lot of music friends who either just kind of gave it over for technical kind of stuff like web development or graphic artist or, you know, uh, systems. And my, my roommate from college was also a music, music major. He actually uh, finished with a jazz studies degree, phenomenal drummer, and he's mostly like a Unix sysadmin nowadays. So I, I think that there's, there's a lot of, un- I think the formality, especially of music, we think and especially in jazz, like in, if you're if you're classically trained and you understand music theory, we talk about the the form of a piece of music a lot. Uh, very common in jazz to have like AABA kind of stuff. You talk about like, oh, this is a rhythm changes song, and that immediately tells you like a billion things you need to know about a particular piece of music. In classical, we talk about sonata form or concerto form and things like that. And so, structured. Thinking like that, I think, really lends itself well to thinking in code where you say you, you want to modularize things. Like, you know, just like you said, you, you know, you want to write a function for this. You don't want to repeat this idea over and over again. We do the same thing in music. If you've ever written out music and you're going to repeat four bars, there's no way you're going to want to sit there and write out the same four bars again. Instead, you put repeat marks, you bracket it in repeat marks and say, repeat this twice, repeat this four times. I mean, my God, we're in a hurry here, right? And it's the same thing when you're writing code. Like, you're not going to copy and paste these, this code all over the place. You're like, oh, no, that goes in a function. Oh, and while I'm at it, I'm going to write a test here, and now I'm done. It's so much simpler to, it simplifies your code, really. That's what I'm trying to get at. That was like a real inflection point in my life. So up to that point, I had been just working in industry, bounced around all different kind of just basic stuff. I was doing a lot of Windows, desktop programming, like Visual Basic. And then I got into Delphi for a while, kind of client server stuff, learning lots about databases. That's been an integral part of everything I've done from the beginning is, is using databases. But it was all just basic stuff, order systems, you know, customers, the bank account kind of, you know, just just your your normal fare. Then I, I got to work, I got a job at boston.com, which was really cool because it was it was kind of a bigger platform, but it was still kind of the same basic stuff. It was news and entertainment instead. And then the my boss at Boston.com was a technical reviewer on a book for a guy named Lincoln Stein, who was a big Perl author, like both modules and books on Perl. And, and I saw that Lincoln was hiring. I didn't know anything about him uh, apart from what he had done in the pearl community which was which was rather big at the time he was he was kind of a he was kind of a big deal and so between the connections there but my boss knowing him i was able to get my foot in the door at Cold Spring Harbor, which is a Cold Spring Harbor is this, this little whaling village from the 1800s out on Long Island. Really cool little spot. And it's got this world renowned campus for doing biomedical research. Anyway, I got a job working for Dr. Lincoln Stein there. Amazing pearl guy, but I had no idea of his work in biology. He's an MD, PhD from uh, like Harvard, MIT, super brilliant guy. He now works for the Ontario Institute for Cancer Research. Just like he got his start in human genetics. He started working in mouse models. Then he started working in plants. He was extremely renowned for working in these these, these tiny, tiny worms called nematodes. Uh, he created this thing called wormbase.org. It was one of the first websites devoted to studying, to bringing together all these resources for uh, community of researchers like literature and he helped write what's called a, a genome browser so as as we're st- you know there were a lot of studies in in all kinds of organisms tons of data a lot of it just like would fit into an excel spreadsheet and, and you know these little uh, kind of maps that they would create like they were able to figure out the chromosome structure and gen- 
generally where on a chromosome where they thought maybe these particular traits were, but the, the world exploded in the 90s when we started getting into sequencing. So we could actually look at base by base the, the, you know, the, the composition of chromosomes. And in the, in the early days, it was incredibly tedious and expensive. It costs like $10 billion to do the Human Genome Project. We can do that project today in like, uh, it took like 10 years, $10 billion. Now we can do the whole thing in like probably a couple of weeks and a few thousand dollars. It's just absurd how far we've come. But in the early days, there were, you know, these, 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 these maps as they were creating them, and you needed a way to visualize them. So he created a software uh, called a Generic Genome Browser that would just load up these, these, the, this data. And in the early days, they were, very, they were still very small data sets, but he could, you could visualize them in a web browser. You could look at these images to see where all these features were on the chromosomes. And, and so he brought all this together to create these websites for what are called model organisms. So things that people study of, you know, have, there are these communities around like, say, Drosophila, which is a, a fruit fly, worms, uh, nematodes. They're in plants. There was a very, very small plant called Arabidopsis, a failcrest, and it's very, very easy to grow in a growth chamber. It grows very quickly. It's, it's very understood. It has a small genome. It, it was a, it, you know, there are these, these, mo- these organisms that people study because they're, it's easy to mutate them. They have short life cycles. You can look at how, the, how a mutation changes. Yeast, obviously, people study that. It's very, you know, it's an extremely single-celled organism, and it's, it's, it's fairly easy to grow in a lab and study. And so I learned all this. I had no idea. I, 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 the last biology class I had was in high school. Actually, I was just visiting with a high school friend a couple weeks ago when I, when I went home, and we both talked about this, 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 this teacher, uh, this high school teacher, biology teacher. We hated her. She was a terrible teacher. And it was like, it was like that. I dropped her class because I hated it so much. And like that, it left a bad taste in my mouth for biology. I'm like, I don't ever want to do biology, which is really a shame. You, you, when I think about teaching, I think at least I don't ever want to be that kind of teacher, right? That like turns someone off from from programming forever. But so uh, it was it was it was really wild that I ended up in this 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 bioinformatics. So you know, for the longest time, biology had no need for computer science because the data sets were very small and and they were just doing what's called wet lab stuff. So you know uh, you know actually in a laboratory with like pipettes and agar you know in in pet petri dishes and all that kind of stuff. But then once sequencing came along, we started having data. And, and it started off as a drip, a little bit of data that would take months to get. And then we started getting sequencers that would automate that stuff and start creating a lot more data. And I remember I started, my, my early genetic maps that I was working with had like 30 features on a chromosome. And I kind of blew my mind when this thing called a fingerprint content came along. And now all of a sudden I had 300, con, you know, features on a con on a contig and i'm like oh wow that's like 10 times greater and then we started getting bigger maps that were it was like 3000 i mean it just kept growing by orders of magnitude right and all of a sudden i'm just swimming i'm trying to cram this data into a mysql database and i've got 50 million rows and like i'm just starting to scratch the surface and i'm like i i was just like it was blowing my mind how much more data i was getting every year year after year but so with the advent of sequencing technologies biology has become this huge data science and has a huge need for people who are trained in computer science. And so you, you get this thing called bioinformatics, which sounds much more, which sounds cooler in, in, in French, bioinformatique, because informatique in uh, French means computer science. So bioinformatics is, is the combination. And usually what you'll find is someone like Lincoln, who is trained as a biologist who learned programming, or someone like me, who it's pretty loose to say I was trained in computer science, but I came from computer science and then learned the biology. Nowadays, you have uh, young whippersnappers going to school and studying both, right? Like, they're, like when I was in high school, this wasn't even a field, right? Uh, I graduated in 1990. So there was no such thing as bioinformatics then. It grew in the 90s. And Lincoln basically helped create the field. So now you have people who are like, oh, bioinformatics, that's a cool field. They go in and they study like a double major in biology and computer science, and they kind of bridge the gap themselves, you know, through their learning. Sometimes you actually have bioinformatics programs at some place where they, they're, they're formally saying, here's the biology and here's how the computer science and here's how they influence each other. But a lot of times you're just, you're learning each, each field individually and you kind of synthesize it yourself. So that's, I had no idea what bioinformatics was. I fell into it. I, I got the job in the lab because I was a web developer, because I was a Perl guy and I knew databases. And so Lincoln asked me to create this thing. 
kind of like a genome browser. Genome browsers generally show you horizontally a small section of a chromosome. He wanted to see vertically whole chromosomes laid out next to each other with like large scale rearrangements. So you'll see this in chromosomes where, like you probably know this, like when the, the mom and dad get together, uh, there's there's a bunch of recombination of to create. So there's a, a mixing, like you get your mom's nose and your dad's eyes. That's how that happens. And so you get this these genetic rearrangements all the time in, in plants. And so he wanted to be able to see at a high level, this section of this chromosome got split between these two other chromosomes and got returned upside down and, and all these things happen. And I was like, it was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I couldn't believe what he was asking me to do. And the, the problem was, is that he could have done everything that he was asking me to do 10 times better and five times faster. But he was a busy guy and he just needed some, he needed me to do it. And so I was just like, it could be difficult working for like certified geniuses. That's what I'm going to say. So it was extremely hard. I worked my tail off for many years just to get my head above water. And then after like I, I got comfortable with the with the domain, and 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 the comfort is is still I'm not barely comfortable. I mean it's such a deep field that I, I always always have imposter syndrome. And I think that's a, and I talked about this with my current boss, like having been a self-taught programmer, having been a self-taught biologist kind of person, I just feel like there, I have always felt there are huge gaps in my understanding. And I always, even to this day, after 25 years of programming and publishing three books, I still have imposter syndrome. So, but that's how I got into, into this. And, and as, you know, you get to a point where you're like, oh, I'm, I'm actually contributing to this field now. I don't want to go back to writing customer orders systems and working in in just basic industry. So I decided to, to stick with this. I got my master's degree while I was working, uh, master of science, while I was working at the University of Arizona. And that really helped to fill in, to, to backfill those gaps. Uh, like, I had never had a statistics class. And so, you know, in science, we talk about p-values all the time. And I was like, I have no idea what a p-value is. And so now I do. It's really cool. So that's that's how I've gotten to where I am now. But even in my role now, like, I don't do research. I help researchers who have a who have a, a question, and I, I implement that for them. But I'm I'm constantly going back to a to a researcher and saying, now, now, what did you mean by this? When you you know, how do you want this transformed? I, I still have a very very basic understanding of the data data that I work with. What are, would you say are the three most valuable skills for someone in your role? Someone who works with a researcher then builds technical solutions for that researcher. You know, I, I there was a guy who I worked with who was a far better programmer than me. But one of the things that he he always insisted on was a spec document before he would start writing. And I get it. I understand. And actually, I, I tried to to get a job teaching at the University of Arizona in their software engineering program. And they one of the things they dinged me on was the fact that I never brought up a spec document. Like, where does that figure into, you know, how you would teach? I'm like, you know what? In my career, I've basically never had a spec document. Not Not really. I think one of the most valuable things that I have relied on in my career is prototyping quickly. So somebody says, here's something I want. And it's generally hand-waving, vague, maybe an email, a lot of times a phone call. Here's kind of what I think I want. Here's some input files. Okay, I will implement something that does, you know, the MVP, minimal viable product. What is the simplest, quickest thing that I can deliver that does the first step? And then iterate from there. Actually, I was there's some interesting people I follow on Twitter, and somebody was just like, "Stop trying to come up with software estimates. It's just it's it's a losing proposition. Just basically, I guess I you know I didn't get deep into what they were s- suggesting, but I think it was basically iterating. Like try to create something that does something. Now go from there. And th- and so I would say number one, that's the that's probably what has made me successful um, is that I'm willing to just go out on a limb. And if I write something that's not even in the ballpark, okay, throw it away. I spent two days on that. It's not a big deal. I'm not going to go six months down a rabbit hole and then come back with something that doesn't work, right? We're just, I'm just going to go back to the, to, the, to the person who has the domain knowledge and I'm going to say, here's what I've got. Let me show it to you. And a lot of times with documentation, with pictures, with graphs, and then we can figure out, am I on the right track? And so that also just, just being able to communicate with people 
comfortable, whether like however they're comfortable. That could be email. In my current situation, like my boss isn't, uh, so I'm in Tucson, Arizona. My boss is in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, we were working with this this uh, company that was in, in Australia. And so we were like literally spanning the globe uh, from like trying to figure out like communication. Like I would talk to my boss, he would talk to the customer and it would come back to me. And so it, I've never spoken to the customer directly. I, so I'm getting all this through an intermediary, but whether that's chat or email or phone call or video call, just being able to talk to somebody, hear what they're trying to like. I think it comes down to storytelling, really. Uh, going back to 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 my roots as uh, you know in literature, there's a story you're trying to tell, and we we talk about this a lot with data in science. Like, okay, we have this data set. One of the best classes that I I took in my master's essentially taught me how to read a scientific paper. And really, in learning how to read a paper, we started with the graphs. And then I realized that's where you start writing a scientific paper a lot of times, is that you're trying to create a picture that is the story that you're telling. And then you fill it in with words. So... Like, what is the story? What is the purpose of this thing that we're trying to create? And that's, and that's, a, it's kind of almost like therapy, right? It's like, you think this is what your problem is, but n- not really. Like, actually, I, personal story, and, and I think this is important, just in a general point, I was really struggling with mental health for, for several years. It was, it was difficult. I became convinced that I was depressed, like I had depression. So I finally saw a, a, a psychiatrist and I said, I think I'm depressed. And he, he said, describe what you're going through and I did and then he's like he's he came back he said I think you have anxiety and because of this your, your personality type and I think this pill it was an SSRI selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor he said I think this will help and it did help and so just as a side note I think a lot of us in this field are probably somewhere maybe on the autism spectrum maybe struggle with like intimacy working with people and so if anyone listening to this is having problems you know please reach out and, and talk to somebody. But, you know, sometimes you think the problem is one thing and somebody can help you see that it's actually a different problem and that there's a, a different solution that you haven't seen before. So, you know, sometimes the, somebody may come to you, they're like, I want this program written. And you're like, what, are you, what is the problem you're trying to solve? And then when you understand that problem, when you understand the story, then maybe you realize, oh, there's a much simpler thing. Like, oh, we can just put this into a database and that's an SQL query, right? You know, I, I work with somebody who's not like an SQL person. And so they do a lot of stuff with pandas and data frames and stuff like that. And I look at this code, and I'm like, it's really, really complex. I think it's much, much simpler if we just load it into a database and use SQL. So, so the first one was prototyping quickly and just like using that to, to, to refine what people are looking for. The other is like communication, like try to ask, try to figure out what is the thing that's, that's trying to be solved here. Uh, uh, third, I don't know, just uh, I talk a lot. Is that useful? Uh, I mean, I have no problem expressing myself. And, and maybe that's, that's rare in this field. You know, I was not very comfortable when I first got up in front of a classroom. And this is, this is an odd thing about me. You certainly wouldn't know, but I'm actually an ordained minister. And the reason is because my sister-in-law was getting married several years ago, and she asked me to perform her ceremony. So I did an internet ordination. You know, it's nothing serious, but I performed her wedding. And I was very nervous. I'd never done that. I had never done any acting, but I'd always kind of been like enamored of it. And so I, I did perform this, the ceremony. The people at the bed and breakfast where, where it happened, they said, said, hey, you weren't terrible. Would you like to be a person who does this at our place? And I was like, I don't know, I guess, sure. And so I just always, I, I, I approached it like it was a role, like it was something I was, I was acting. And so I kind of forced myself when I got into the classroom to just, okay, I'm pretending like I'm a person who knows what the hell they're doing, who knows how to teach, which I did not at all. There was so much to learn with teaching. And so maybe a willingness to kind of put myself in very uncomfortable situations, like honestly going to work for Cold Spring Harbor and learning biology and doing that first piece of software for Lincoln, that was, it was huge. I mean, I can't tell you how, how stupid I felt. And I have been willing to make myself feel extremely stupid over and over again, because I'm just willing to essentially get in over my head and just trust that I can, I can swim. Yeah, I could not agree more on the, the getting out of your comfort zone comments. You you mentioned imposter syndrome, and I think that if you don't have imposter syndrome, you're not going hard enough. You should be surrounded by people that make you realize that you have so much to learn. Of course, you can if you're the type of person that likes a steady job where you can coast, 
all like more power to you. But I often find that if I am not feeling like the dumbest person in the room, at least the majority of the time, um, I get bored and it's, it's really hard to maintain interest. And also the fastest way to grow is just surround yourself by talent and by really skilled people that know what they're doing. When you make a mistake, I, I'll never forget on my first internship, I had a call with my boss, like an intro call. And he's like, oh, what have you worked on in the past? And I was like, oh, I've coded in Python and R. I use NumPy a lot, mispronouncing NumPy. And he just, he like slightly corrected me. And I like, I will never forget the feeling of embarrassment. And I just didn't know because I had always read docs. I'd never said yeah. the word NumPy before. So well, being able to get out of your comfort zone is an incredibly valuable skill, especially as you said, for people who tend to be more introverted and technically minded and maybe less social. If you're willing to step out of that stereotype, you really do bring a lot more to the game than a lot of your colleagues. Yeah. I was just going to recap the, the other two. It sounded like prototyping is a very valuable skill that I am trying to work on as well. Um, it sounds like the main value add from prototyping that you mentioned is that you don't waste time. Is that correct? Waste as little time as possible. So I, I have a way that I now, like I, I work probably in Python like 90% of the time and have for several years. There was a point at which I was like, okay, Perl had its day, but scientific computing is, is pretty much dominated with Python. So I've moved all my tooling over to Python. Uh, it took me a while to to figure out how, because I had I had a style in Perl and I had to figure out what my style was in Python. I have a actually a PyPy module called new.py. You can install it with new-py, but that's how I start every single command line program, which is 100% of what I do in Python is command line programming. And so I use that to start and it always has the same structure. You know, I use arg parse and then I do stuff with the, with the arguments. So the first you know, first, art parses to me kind of like the, the the shield, right? To it, it, it's it's the interface to the command line dial, and make sure I'm getting some decent inputs to my program. So I have that, and then I say, okay, the first thing I need is this input file and maybe this variable, and I write that, and I do something with it. Maybe I write some tests, or maybe I just kind of eyeball it, like, okay this seems to work. And then I add the next thing. I don't write hundreds of lines of code and then run it. I mean, I write something, I add two or three lines of code and I run it and I look at it. And this is how I try to teach my, my students too. You know, I, uh, I, it's amazing to me how you will, you will get a, a new programmer who will sit there and write 50 lines of code. And at no point, you know, uh, syntax check or just see if it runs or use a code formatter to, 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 to clean it up. I mean, they just write a bunch of stuff and then they have 16 errors to fix. So try to get it to where, you know, you, you're just constantly iterating. You're running it. You're checking it. Uh, oh, make files. Oh, my God. If, if, if anyone doesn't hasn't explored just using make files to automate, like, okay, you know, I've got this complicated command line structure with all these arguments, just put that into a make file, call it run, put it at the top, and then you just type make, and it runs your program with all those those things, and you look at it, and that's how I automate my testing, too, make test, and it runs all these tests for me. And so, you, yeah, you just come up with something that uses just a portion of the inputs and does something then add the next feature, then add the next feature and constantly go back and see, are you on the right track? But, you know, I would never spend more than a couple of days working on something before I would go back and, and ask my boss if I'm on the right track. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production. And you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Yeah, and for a lot of people, rabbit holes are fun. So having the discipline is very admirable. I've gotten, gotten stuck down week-long rabbit holes and then look up and realize I've done absolutely nothing and just wasted a bunch of time. So <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't wasteful. You probably learned something. Maybe oh, yeah. you, if nothing else, you learned not to, not to spend a week before you raise your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. Cool. So that was point number one. And then finally, we talked about the third point, but point number two was communicating. And it seemed like the angle for communication from your perspective is to find the most efficient path to value and determining value. Because often a lot of the stakeholders that you're working with don't know exactly what they want or even what is out there in terms of the solution space. 
So if you can communicate, read between the lines, find their problem, and then use your knowledge to try to solve that, that's a really valuable skill. Did I interpret that correctly? Yeah. Yeah, I would say that's it. Yeah, it, it is It is amazing, actually. Even in the bioinformatics space, I am now working with... So in, when I was in academia, I was mostly, you know, I was really working with researchers, principal investigators, people who write grants, uh, and their grad students, or their undergrads even sometimes. And so, like, the, the scale of problems that I was working on was kind of small. And now I'm working globally with, you know companies and all all across uh you know the world and of all different kinds of sizes from like huge huge mega pharmaceutical companies to small kind of startups with you know maybe a dozen scientists and and like they don't like they have a lab technique but they have no idea computationally what's available like they're like okay we've got this data and this is what we want to discover from it but we haven't read any papers we don't know what any of the tools are and you're just like oh my god I'm not here to do your science for you, but still, I, I mean, I am here to hold your hand and give you an idea. So you're like, okay, so what is it you think you want? And and I, and it's my job, you know, especially in a pre-sales role, to throw something together, show them how it works on the platform, and say, okay, here's your input file you gave me, and here's the output that I can generate for you. Are you ready to sign a contract? Right, uh, and then we can go from there. We have professional services who who have, you know, people with PhDs who who can put this stuff together better than I can. But yeah, I deal with that a lot. People who really just have no idea what is out there in the solution space certainly don't know a thing about cloud computing or databases or or any of that. They just, they have something and they think they want something and like, can you help me get there? And you're like, for the right price, yeah, I can, you know? Yeah, it sounds like a, a really fascinating role and a mix of a lot of different skills. Cool. So we are running a little bit low on time, so I figured we could start wrapping up. Any concluding thoughts? Any books you wanted to mention slash re-mention any ways that people can get in contact with you if they so choose uh yeah you know it's funny i put my email address in all my books like just in the source code it's it's everywhere kyclark at gmail.com i don't care and and not not that many people write me so it's not a big deal i i don't really no one's ever abused it i'm on twitter kycl4rk i was just a little bit late getting to Twitter, so I had to substitute the the A for the four. But I'm KY Clark on GitHub. I'm KY Clark basically everywhere that I could get it. You know, so I've written I've written three books and they're and they're really all about testing. And I think that that no matter what you do, no matter what language you're working in, you should consider writing tests. I think it, it helps you break big problems into small problems and have confidence in your code. And test tests I was actually kind of having a discussion on Twitter uh, the other day, somebody was saying, tests don't work. I don't like tests. I'm like, and they were complaining because they were trying to add something to an existing database, a code base that had a bunch of tests, but a bunch of the tests were wrong. They kind of sucked. And I'm like, well, code has to be refactored and so do tests. I mean, you, it's it's constant. They, they co-evolve with each other. But like, if you're not testing, honestly, what are you doing? Like, how, how do you know that your program works? I, I, it's, it's unconscionable, to, especially in the scientific realm, to release something that has no test at all. So test. Oh, my God, please just write a test. I was working with this one guy at the university and like I, it just it, it took like six months. I was like, dude, write a test. And I kept showing him like with his code. I'm like, here, I wrote a test. This function doesn't do what you think it does. And he's like, oh, mm. I'm, I'm like, doesn't this bother you? Uh, oh my God. Uh, so I don't know. I guess that, that would be the thing I would say. And if you don't know how to write tests, I've written three books, two in Python and one in Rust that will show you how to get started with that. Uh, but the idea is you can take to every any other language. Um, and honestly, if you were to read... I, if you were to read the Python book and one of the Python books and one of the Rust books, you would see I'm doing the exact same thing. I just I just cargo culted those ideas over. I'm like, okay, how do I get started parsing command line arguments using a standard module and how do I test? And that's that's essentially like 80% of what I do. You hear that, people? Test your code, please. For the love of God, test your code. For the love of God. All right, well, this has been really fun. It's been Michael Burke and Ken Ewan's Clark. And we will see you guys next time. Thanks. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.